Hello and welcome to the Just In Stride podcast. I'm your host, Justin Pugliese. If you love endurance sports, you've definitely come to the right place. On this show, we'll talk to athletes, coaches, and professionals who can help us reach our true potential. Being a student of distance running for over 10 years and interviewing people in the sport for the last five, I've learned a ton, but there's always more to discover. Everyone has a story, and I know you'll resonate with each of our guests as we embark on this new journey together. Join us at home, on the road, or while you run. Together, we'll have some fun. So follow along on Instagram at JustinStridePod and your favorite podcast platform and prepare to be inspired. Come along for the ride with Just In Stride. This episode is presented by our friends at Exact Nutrition, a tasty and healthy way for you to fuel your body before, during, and after a solid training session. I can't leave the house without a few fruit bars in my pocket and they never make it back home. Exact is offering you 15% off your order when you use the code JUSTINSTRIDE. So head to exactnutrition.com and fuel your goals today. What does it mean to get outside your comfort zone? It could be starting a new job, trying a new sport, meeting new people, or maybe going on an adventure filled with unknowns. Whatever it is, if we decide to go there, we will come away with some valuable lessons and likely learn something about ourselves. Today on Justin Stride, we'll enter the mind of a great Canadian explorer, adventurer, and ultra runner, Ray Zahab. You might know Ray from his book and documentary, Running the Sahara, but his list of accomplishments go far beyond that. He's conquered deserts in blistering heat and the Arctic in sub-zero temperatures, conditions many of us will never get a chance to experience. But through his foundation, Impossible to Possible, he's able to share his love for expeditions and adventure with a youth ambassador team, teaching them resilience, perseverance, and dedication. Welcome to Justin Stride, Ray. Thanks uh, so much for taking the time. It's great to be here, brother. Stoked. Yeah. Yeah, not our first uh, conversation, but definitely the first one on this show. So I'm excited to introduce you to, you know, our new listeners and um, can't wait to kind of hear what you've been up to. That's awesome, man. Yeah, it's great to be on here and congrats on the new format, the new podcast. It's exciting. Yeah, it's uh, it really is. Yeah. And I'm I'm stoked to kind of get get things going here. Um, So what's new with you, Ray? Like, I know, you know. You're always up to something. You're a, a, like a great Canadian explorer, and but it's, no, it's it's not always been that way. But what's been uh, what have you been up to lately? What have I been up to lately? It's kind of an open ended and loaded question at the same time. I mean, I you know, I'm training. Let's you know where I am exactly in this moment. I'm training like crazy for what it is that I'm planning to do next. Um, you know, I'm trying to increase my mileage, my daily trail running mileage, mountain biking. Uh, starting to put in bigger days and trying to find that work-life balance with family, my daughters who are competitive athletes as well in their own sports, and you know, but be able to put in the time that I need to do to do the things that I want to do. But that being said, the primary focus for me right now is to become as healthy as I can be um, right now as I recover from uh, essentially what was six months of chemotherapy and monoclonal therapy for a rare form of lymphoma, which is the blood cancer. So, uh, I'm sort of coming off of that. Now I've been six, seven weeks, seven weeks, about seven weeks since my last and final chemotherapy rounds. And I'm feeling fantastic. As a matter of fact, I feel better now 
than I did the last two years while I was still doing projects and getting after it in, you know, hottest and coldest places on earth and feeling like garbage, not realizing how much of garbage I felt like, but now I'm feeling like I used to feel, you know, I'm starting to feel like I used to feel right. I'm getting my health back, which is an amazing thing to feel, you know? So Yeah. And you know, it's, it's great that you're kind of getting back there. You know, you mentioned that you feel better than you did before. Were there warning signs for this? You know, it's a rare form of, of cancer, like you're saying. Um, how did you identify that? What was yeah, the breaking point? That's a great question. So I was training uh, last year. I'd come back from Ellesmere Island and even backing up before that. So longer than a year ago, I started noticing after having COVID a few times, that I wasn't recovering well after workouts. I, um, I just wasn't able to prepare myself for things that I do like I normally could. And as you know, and many of your listeners would not know unless they've followed my adventures before. To this point, I've covered close to twenty thousand kilometers of running, trekking, skiing across literally every large desert on the planet, less one, the Simpson in Australia, but every other desert, including the Sahara. 7,000 kilometers. Um, I have crossed many of the coldest regions of the planet, unsupported Arctic expeditions. I've been to the South Pole, I've crossed Siberia, Kamchatka, the Canadian Arctic numerous times, numerous different expeditions. So I'm used to adversity and knowing my body and knowing when things are going well and when they're not. And I'd come back, uh, so I had COVID a few times, trying to prepare for things, was up on Ellesmere, came back, was preparing to go to Death Valley last summer. And I absolutely could not recover from workouts. Like I mean, literally could run one day and not run the next. Not only that, I was finding that I needed to nap frequently during the day. And it was a slow degradation, dude. Like, I mean, as you know, I used to smoke a pack a day, two packs a day, um, drink heavy, all the stuff before I got into ultra running and adventure sports and all this sort of thing. Um, in those days, if I tried running up a set of stairs, I'd be completely winded in my prior life. And I would think, well, it's normal because I'm running upstairs and I'm winded. Well, it wasn't normal, right? And I didn't realize until after when I changed my life and I started running and doing these things, all of a sudden I'm bounding upstairs and I'm like, oh, wait a sec. I felt like shit for the last 30 years of my life, right? And all of a sudden I feel good. So it was kind of the same thing with this. This thing insidiously came on and I slowly depreciated to a point where my wife was like, you need to get blood work. Like there's something wrong with you. And one thing led to another, and they determined that I have a lymphoma, which is a common blood cancer, but I had a rare form of that lymphoma. And so my blood proteins were very, very high, and I was anemic. And so it was affecting everything. Uh, so I started chemotherapy and monoclonal therapy in October. Okay. Yeah, so that's... It's really having to know your body, you know, it's uh, like you say, you, you go through all these advent adventures and expeditions and you're really in tune with everything. So that really, that sense of like, this is not normal. This is definitely something different than what I'm used to. Like, how do we get to the bottom of this? Like, so what was like the diagnosis? And then, you know, what, what did that do to you personally? Like, did, is it, is it a super, like, it's rare, but is it threatening and... Like, how do you fight? That? So I, if, if I go back in time, you know, 2004, when I, I transitioned. So 
you know, I, I told you, you know, pack a day smoker, unhealthy guy, changed my life. Then I start getting into the outdoors and my brother uh, who got me into the outdoors, wicked ice climber and mountain biker and all that. I started out in mountain biking, was racing mountain bikes competitively, got in really, really good shape over a few years, racing in some pretty big international races and doing well, discovered ultra running, started racing in ultras and became a competitive ultra runner. And the types of races that I liked were the ones that would take me to the furthest places away and just the, the whole aspect of being in these remote and faraway places and an appreciation of these places that I was learning about because running was teaching me so much about the world, but about myself being in a race in Niger in two, it was a 200 mile race nonstop in 2004 and being completely beat down. Like I would go into these things and I would just give it everything that I had because I kind of knew what I was doing, but also not, I didn't know what I was doing. So I would just go as hard as I could. And I remember I was having a really good race. I was like running top three and I was alone in the middle of the desert, feeling like a bag of nuts and bolts. I was just a mess. But I remember looking up at the sky and thinking to myself, wow, there's literally nowhere else on the planet. I'd rather be in this exact moment, even though I feel so horrible right now, what a gift it is to be out here. So fast forward, when I'm doing these things, all these expeditions, all these years later, all these things that I learned about myself through the process, I learned that listening to ourselves, knowing where we are, without sounding too corny here, in space and time and appreciating where we are, was critical to me. And when I received that diagnosis and they said, well, listen, this is what you have. It wasn't like this sense of, and by the way, listen, this is what you have and there is no cure. You know, we're going to get you um, really healthy and you'll be back to normal or better than normal for the next two to five years on average. And you probably have to do chemotherapy again. But I was like, hey, I like those odds. And now I have a diagnosis and I know what I'm up against, right? So it was like sort of that same feeling. You know what? I'm in this office. I'm getting this diagnosis. This is the place that I am in my life right now. This is where I am and I need to deal with it. And I can either, you know, uh, you know, go into hibernation for six months during this process, or I can continue to live and embrace where I am right now. And it's going to suck in a lot of ways, but hey and so that's what i that's what i did i know that's a really long answer for your question no yeah no but it's like it's 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 what i love about it is that you know you you use all those experiences to to then take on a new challenge you know that's that's your health and it's a little bit different but the the mindset is the same you know how you tackle those things and how you approach them and the you know, you can't dwell on it. You know, you got to kind of move forward in the best way you can. And that's, I'm sure you face that. Well, Justin, you know, as well as anyone, what it's like to run an ultra and you run the ultra, let's say it's a hundred miles or hundred K, whatever it is, get to the end of the race. And you're like, I am never doing that again. But then somehow you get back into it again and you will yourself and you start getting excited. And then you're like, I'm totally stoked about this next race I'm going to do. Right. And expeditions are kind of that way too. Like I'll go away. I'm gone 20, 30, 40 days, whatever, doing one of these things that I'm doing. And I'm so beat down physically at the end. But, and I think to myself, woof, maybe that's the last one. And then a month later, I'm planning and training for the next. 
when I went into this thing and I knew what the chemotherapy plan was going to be, and I had amazing doctors, um, I figured out very quickly that I was going to have one really bad week. So I basically what would happen was I was that monoclonal therapy and, and chemotherapy. It would be two days. And then I would have basically almost 25 days off in between sessions in that 25 day period post chemo. I'd have a week where I felt like garbage a week where I was kind of starting like a, a half a week to a week where I was starting to feel better. And then in that mishmash of time, I'd have about a week and a half where I felt decent. And I committed during every one of those months, those chemo months that I would do something to keep me motivated, to keep me as healthy as I could possibly be, force myself to get out of bed and train, even when I didn't feel like it, eat the foods I needed to eat, not eat garbage, um, not uh, stay emotionally and mentally strong. So that I would roll into the next sessions of treatments feeling like I gave it everything I could. So each month was like a challenge, like one of your ultra marathons that you would do. And the goal was be as healthy and fit as I can. I use those goals each month, you know, guiding clients in the Atacama Desert or um, heading with my buddies uh, from Norda, Nick from Norda and going to the running show in Austin or um, it, going with my youngest daughter to death valley to do some scouting for some upcoming projects or going on my own arctic expedition in february right every month i gave myself something to focus on and i learned that from expeditions you know yeah so cool yeah does it change your perspective or outlook moving forward or do you kind of just jump back on your plan your your plan for what expeditions look like over the next few years uh like like yeah, you normally that, would that's a great question i mean does it change my outlook uh, you know um, my sister-in-law were and I were talking about this. She went through breast cancer and she said, ah, you know, it's like, it's not, there's no, like, it's not really a journey. And I said, yeah, you know, this is just something that was in my life. It was like, you know, any of the other, it was a, a, a period of adversity. Right. But I think what it taught me is that for certain you can have many things in your life, but your health is the number one most important thing that you can own. Do you know what I mean? To a certain extent. And no matter how healthy I was and, you know, my training and all that stuff, bad things can still happen. But you may as well give it everything you got to be as healthy as you can possibly be, you know, um, so that life can be as awesome as, as possible, right? Because you have one kick at the can and that's pretty much it. And so I've always believed since I changed my life and since I went through, you know, the transition of the transformation in life of being an unhealthy guy to a healthy guy, that if you can find happiness and passion in your life, then you've won the lottery, mm -hmm. right? And so I wasn't willing to wither with this, but instead grow from it and take whatever you know, the hard days of what I've just experienced, but also the really good days and push those forward into what I do next. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm sure a sense of gratitude comes with that too. Like every day that after that, where you got through it and now you can kind of enjoy all the things that you love to do, which is tons and tons of exciting and fun things and spend time with your family and all that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, what yeah, I see sure. you doing with your daughter too is amazing. And, uh, you know, she's kind of following in dad's footsteps, like, 
and doing all these yeah, active it, things. It, and I have two daughters and they're both better Nordic skiers than me. They're both <laughs> better. They're better trail runners. They're better at everything. And, you know, I, that's such a great thing for me. I mean, that's, that's really where my, my passion is in doing things with my family. I mean, really, truly. Um, but, you know, as you know, because you and I have chatted many times before, you, you know, I do a bunch of things. I have my foundation, Impossible to Possible, where I take young people on expeditions around the world. Pre-pandemic, we were doing two expeditions a year. And now we're getting right back. And we've done one since the, like in the middle of the pandemic, when it was kind of like there was like this little lull for a while and people weren't sure. We did a mini trip. Now we're getting another huge uh, youth-based expedition going to the Atacama Desert this year. Um, super excited about that and communicating with the youth ambassadors that are going to going to be going on that expedition. I also have my guiding company, Capic One. Um, so I've got some amazing clients going to amazing places this year. My own expeditions and projects. I have a lot that I want to do following my daughters as they compete in their own sports. They're, they're both competitive spring kayakers and spring canoers and, um, you know, in the summer and in the winter competitive Nordic skiers. So I've got a lot I want to live for and be healthy for, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And, and, and be able to crank it back up. And I'll be honest with you on some of my training runs these days, I feel, as I said to you in the beginning, better than I have in the last two years. Yeah, yeah, and that's got to feel amazing, right? Like that's Oh, yeah, I feel it's legit, dude. It's legit because it's like you just flicked a switch, right? Like I felt like garbage after my last and final chemo. And I thought, well, maybe I won't get out of this hole. And then each run subsequent to that, I'm like, wow, I forgot what it was like to have gears. Like it's the things that we take for granted. I used to be able to run up hills. I, I got a bunch of buddies who are really fast runners. And I would go out on trails with them and we'd work each other on the trails. And I remember being able to run up climbs, really technical climbs. You get to the top and be able to know how hard can I push the top of this hill so that I can recover on the way down to race my buddies up the next part. Well, for two years, I forgot that I kind of lost that. And you just get used to not having that anymore. Well, mm -hmm. the other day I'm out trail running with one of my fast buddies and I'm like, hey, wait a sec. I can push a little harder. I, it's not monotone. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, it's like... Yeah, you try. It's like you get those reminders of what it's like to try and gain fitness again when you're when when you're coming off of maybe being at you know peak performance. You know what peak performance feels like for so many years. Um, yes, it's kind of like becoming a beginner again. In a sense. Yes, it's 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 the craziest thing to lose. It's like um, losing your sense of taste, and then living like that for a long time. And then just assuming all food is bland. And then one day it just comes back. Yeah. Right. And you bite into chocolate and you taste it. And you're like, shit, that's good. You know? <laughs> so, right. Yeah. What was there a breakthrough like, like for you, like as you're coming back to, to getting your fitness, are you, is there something you're doing differently to kind of regain that fitness or is it kind of using old tricks to kind of get yourself back to. Well, interesting question. Thank you for asking it. I, you know, over the years, years ago, um, before we ran across the Sahara on the expedition, I was coaching, I had a coaching business and I was coaching up to 50 runners a month on average. And I was always learning. I was in that industry, right? My brother and sister-in-law are in the health and wellness industry. They're both functional strength coaches. And, um, and they work with a lot of really interesting folks like NHL hockey players, for example, that are injured or people coming back from injuries. And so 
I learned a lot about physiology and running and all that in those days. And you learn from running and communicating with your clients and all that stuff about their races as they're going through some years and years and years. Of this. And then one day, while I transitioned from racing ultras to doing expeditions that were longer and sometimes in more adverse conditions, crossing deserts in the middle of summer, for example, or Arctic expeditions in the middle of winter, I realized that my training had to be unconventional in order to prepare me for, you know, the hottest places on earth, for example. So, and meager resources of food in the Arctic, only bringing what I need, you know, that sort of thing. So I, in my training post chemo decided that I would follow some of those more unconventional elements of training and start applying them to really shake things up. Whenever you change things radically in your training program as an ultra runner or a runner, you cause a physiological response. So the longer you've been running and doing things, the greater the dramatic shift in your training needs to be to incite a physiological response, an adaptive process. So I'm doing stuff that I wasn't necessarily doing before, but some of the things that like I give Elliot Cardin or other myself, I, I'm, I'm coaching a handful of friends right now just for kicks. Cause I'm having fun with it. And, <laughs> um, you know, I, and I love the, these superstar athletes like Elliot. I mean, it's ridiculous how fast that guy, I mean, he'll send me his kilometer repeats. I don't know if he's comfortable with me talking about this stuff, but I mean, he, he's laying Oops. down in the two thirties, you know, mm. on his kilometer repeats. It's ridiculous. I mean, if I'm riding my mountain bike, I suppose I could keep up. But at any rate, you know, I apply some of the, the stuff that I'm doing, the proprioceptive stuff in running or the more mindful stuff in trail running, getting smooth, getting really fast, using less effort to move quickly down the trails, nose breathing, all these different elements. So, yes, I'm shaking it up and trying to keep it different. Yeah. And that's that's a challenge. You know, when you've been training for so long, sometimes you fall into this lull of uh of the same, 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 same all the time. And I like what you said there, like really uh, implementing some different things to really get your body to kind of get uncomfortable, you know, outside of the comfort zone, I think is, is a, it's a, you know, we as runners, we as runners um, and many of your listeners will sort of recognize this in themselves um, is that we get comfortable doing something that we really like. Right. And then what we do is we try to repeat more and more of the things that we really like rather than occasionally doing the things that we need to do that we may not like as much, right? But those, call, call, you know, create those opportunities for the body to grow. Mm -hmm. Like strength training, there's a lot of people that just do not like to be in the gym strength training. They hate it. But, you know, you do a strength training program, balancing out with some plyo and some moves like that, your trail running, the difference in your trail running, the capacity will be extraordinary. Your, your agility improves so much. Or doing stuff like nose breathing runs where you're, you know, uh, oxygenating your body, improving your capillarization, all of these things. Um, you put the hard time and you put the hard work in, you get out on those long runs on the weekend when you're hammering and you're breathing normally and you're sucking in that oxygen and you're more efficient then. Right. Yeah. So you, you know, and how much of that are you passing on to your, your little ones? You know, should they're, they're, uh, they're rocking they it, both you know? Yeah, they're both, they both have amazing, they, they have amazing coaches, right? So they're part of the ski program at Chelsea Nordic and they have amazing coaches there and in the winter. And, um, you know, uh, my oldest is on the Quebec team for sprint kayak. So, 
they, they have amazing coaches in both sports. Um, the thing about it that I find so fascinating about them is they both do biathlon and they kind of figured out at a young age how to shoot between, you know, your heartbeats. So getting their heart rates to drop low enough when they get down into the shooting area that they could shoot and then get back up again and then ski once they hit all the targets, right? So it's really interesting. And I think that a huge part of that is because they're they're cardiovascularly fit as well because they've been trail running since they were babies, right? Mm-hmm. With us, with my wife and I. So, yeah, so passing what, on, I yeah. think I'm learning more than I'm passing on, you know? From them. Yeah, exactly. From them. That's interesting. Yeah. And I'm sure like, you know, they don't always want to hear from their dad. So I guess it's good. That they have, <laughs> it's totally true. They have coaches, you know, um, yeah. when you look at like your whole body of work, like so far in your life, like if you go back, like, could you have ever predicted that you'd be here? Like you have, you know, you're, you're, you're doing so many things and you're helping the youth and you're, you start a coffee company and you know, you're coaching and, could you have ever imagined that you got here, you know, and like, what do you think from within you? Like, what do you think allowed for that to happen, to have this kind of growth in your life? Well, you know, I, um, no, I could have never predicted it because when I was 30 and I was, you know, the unhealthy guy, I told you about smoking a pack a day and drinking way too much and just constantly partying. I couldn't picture myself being 40. Right. And then when I, shifted my life and went from someone who was very risk adverse and unwilling to try new things and was afraid of failure and all of those things instead became someone who was like to hell with it. I don't care if I fail, I'm going for it. And someone who saw the world with the glass half full instead of constantly thinking about where I was going to be, I was where I was now, right in my mind. And I think that, um, It's not a matter of taking things for granted, but I think we can't take ourselves too seriously either. And I think we have to really love what we do and be very passionate about what we do. And if you have those things, everything else kind of starts to take care of itself, right? If you're super passionate about something, it will succeed over time. But time is the, that's the big ticket item. That's what costs the most is time because it's the it's the hardest thing is to be patient right so when i first started doing um ultra marathons i come off of mountain biking i really didn't have very much money at all i didn't have anything i was living in a small apartment renting it from a friend of mine uh here in chelsea and um when i transitioned into ultra running my very first running race ever was the Yukon Arctic Ultra. So I had never done a running race. I'd done tons of adventure races, Eco Challenge qualifiers, Raid the North, and as I mentioned, a lot of mountain bike racing. But when I ran that first ultra, I knew something was different. It was a 100 miler. I won it. I'd never really experienced anything like that before. It was the Yukon in the middle of winter in February. It was very difficult. But my mind was expanded to the possibility in completing that race that human beings underestimate themselves physically, mentally, and emotionally. And that, that, that just, it didn't apply just to me that to many of us, we feel that way, but that race proved to me that in fact, the alternate 
reality was true as well, that we can exceed any of those limits that we have. And I didn't set out after that race to go to more ultra marathons to try and win more ultra marathons. I set out to learn more about myself and try and figure out how I did what I did in the Yukon because I still didn't understand how I did it. Even to this day, I'm not sure how I did it. And in that process of pursuit of wanting to learn more about myself, one thing led to another. I was doing really well at ultras. I met a couple of buddies. We became really good friends. We said, hey, here's a great idea. Let's run across the whole Sahara Desert. So we make this plan to run 7,500 kilometers across the Sahara Desert. Six degrees of separation. Matt Damon hears about it, gets involved. I'm really condensing the story. And they decide to make a movie <laughs> called Running the Sahara. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I'm sitting at the Toronto Film Festival. Eddie Vedder is sitting there from Pearl Jam. And they, you know, Mike McCready did music for the film. Wycliffe, and there's this documentary playing at the Toronto Film Festival. And I'm pinching myself and I'm saying, how is this possible? I think when we live in pursuit of our dreams, things happen, right? And it's just, this, it's the same thing with impossible to possible. Impossible to possible came from running the Sahara because when we finished crossing the Sahara, I couldn't believe that through an adventure, we could learn so much again about ourselves, but about the world. I thought, wow, you know, it'd be totally legit for like teenagers to be able to go out <laughs> and experience what we just experienced and go and do the things we just did, obviously on a smaller scale, but be able to go to some amazing places. And so then I said, okay, I'm going to start this thing called Impossible to Possible. And so my wife, Kathy, and my buddy, Bob, and I started this thing and said it would be free. We're volunteers. And we started creating these youth expeditions. Mm -hmm. And we've been all 15 of them so far around the world, right? Amazon jungle, Rajasthan, the Arctic, et cetera. And so, again, I know I'm answering your question in a very long way, but it's impossible to answer it in any other way. You arrive at a destination and you don't think, I never or rarely look back across my life and say, wow. I did that. No, I did that. And I did that. It's all, I have a website, obviously, and I, it, it stays updated. But I'm not <laughs> focused on the past. I'm not focused on the past. It doesn't define you. What defines you is who you are in the moment, right? Yeah. And there, I mean, it was a big question. So I, I commend yeah, you. Yeah, sorry about that long. <laughs> in that way, you know, and, um, you know, and Sahara, you know, running the Sahara, like great documentary and great book, you know, um, that, that, depicts exactly what you guys set out to do there and I, I encourage anybody who hasn't seen it to to watch it and I loved it like do you think that that event you know I know you say you can't go back and say I did this 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 and this and the list is very long we can't talk about all of them but do you think that that adventure catapulted you into another like another level of maybe finding a different potential for yourself yeah you know and and what I mean by that just to follow up on what I had said before uh, you know I you walk into my house, there isn't pictures on the wall or Guinness World Records or any of that stuff. That's all in a filing cabinet, right? Instead, we celebrate at our house what our daughters are doing, right? And I think that I, I think that I know that I don't want to be reminded constantly, you know, in my own home about something that I've done, but instead appreciate it. I appreciate the things that I've done, but instead I'm focused on what I'm doing now. And that I'm happy now and I'm, I'm doing the best I can with what I do and where it will lead down the road, right? I'm not, but I get people have different strategies and different ways of living and achieving the things they want to achieve. 
obviously we have to set goals and prepare for them. I plan for an expedition that's a year and a half away. I'm training now for it. So I am a long-term planner that way. But to say a complete thing where I, you know, in the past would have said, well, you know, for example, to answer your question, you just asked, I didn't finish running the Sahara saying to myself, well, that's it. I'm going to be a professional explorer now for the rest of my life. It wasn't <laughs> like that, right? It was like, yeah. that was incredible. And then one thing led to another. And then I was en route to the South Pole or I ran uh, just a bunch of different running expeditions, you know, and stuff like that. And it's just one thing led to another, you know, one thing precipitated another because of the passion that I had for what I was doing and how I was living my life, trying yeah. to live my life, you know? Yeah, totally. And I, I talked like hearing you speak, I just feel like, you know, your why, you know, like you're, you know why you're doing these things and you know what it brings to you and, and for you, you know, you don't have to spread it all over your house with the medals and awards and all this stuff. Like you don't need those reminders. Those are for you too. You know, it's a, it's a thing. It's a good lesson to, to share with, you know, you, with your kids too. And, you know, and, and understand like, especially in a world like today with like social media and all that stuff, like, it's all about the next thing, the next marathon, the yeah. next big race. Right. And how much of that is for you or for, or how much of that is for other people? I mean, that's for each individual to, to understand and decide, but. Exactly. Because yeah. we all live in an individual reality as well as a global reality. Right. So, I mean, there's two things happening simultaneously. So I recently wrote a post. I said, you know, the greatest challenges that we face in our lives are very personal and relative to us as individuals. So something that I might think is really hard, like the chemo, for example, was brutal for me, but there was people like, I'm not alone in the chemo in the cancer clinic, getting the chemotherapy. There's people all around getting chemo. And there was a guy I was talking to and he was in for his second, like it had come back his cancer had come back and he was in there. And I said, well, I said, wow, does it make you feel like garbage? He said, no, he said, no problem. I have no symptoms, nothing. So you're going to walk out of here feeling great. He says, yeah. I'm like, wow, that is not my experience. And so in that though, too, the great things that we achieve, the awesome things that we achieve in our lives are very relative to us as individuals. Has to be meaningful to us first before it can be truly meaningful to anyone else. Right? Yeah. And, and how do you, how do you choose the next thing? You know, the, your, your adventures and expeditions are so vast and so big. Like, how do you... How do you decide where you're going to go next and what you're going to do? And like, is there, is there a timeline for you? Like how far ahead do you plan? You know? Well, I go to places that I, it has to be meaningful to me personally. It has to be some place that I've dreamed about or something that I've really wanted to do, you know? And, um, typically it's remote or, I mean, it, it, some of these expeditions, like when I did the first crossing of the Atacama Desert, north to south, 1,200 kilometers, middle of summer, the data, I did it in 2011, the data and information I was able to get was very minimal. It was really hard to put that trip together. And it was brutally difficult because resupplies were far apart. You're talking 50 to 55 degrees Celsius every day, hole in the ozone. So the sun was brutal, right? The UV uh, rays. And, um, it was an incredibly difficult expedition to plan and train for. And I trained and planned for that for over a year, just for one thing, but that's typical for me too. Like it, 
expeditions typically are a year of planning and training. And then I go and I do it. I, everything's changes. Like I, my diet, I adapt my diet for the type of food that's going to be on that expedition. And I adapt to being able to perform with that. And ironically will normally train myself up even more than I was when I was doing racing ultras or mountain bike racing. I'm trained up more, you know, it's about adversity. It's about being comfortable in adversity because that's what expeditions are pure adversity. If you know, I'm going to the desert in the summer, I'm going to the Arctic in the winter. Those are really difficult things for me, especially to do. So, you know, I train for that. Choosing those locations though, really has to be something. There's something special that draws me to that place. And I do love being in places or places where very few people have ever been or places at times of year when people very rarely visit or immerse themselves in those environments because I find that those times are when it's the most extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And I know you've done uh, expeditions too in the Arctic, uh, up in Nunavut also. I worked in Nunavut and I know this cold. I I felt this in, you know, January, February, where it's windy, minus 60. There's no buildings or trees to hold that wind back. Those northern winds. I'm just like really, like you can't, they, for us, they suggested you can't stay outside for more than five minutes. Otherwise you get frostbite. So then I thought of you, I said, you know, this guy's out there trekking along, you know, hundreds of <laughs> kilometers. Like how the heck do you plan for that? How do you stay safe in those extreme conditions, extreme heat or extreme cold? Like, well, it's, it, you know, for starters, dude, I find the cold so brutal. Like, yeah. I just, oh my God. But, you know, I have a great outerwear partner, as you know, Canada Goose, and they've always helped me. Um, I've collaborated with the design team there to create some amazing gear. A lot of my gear to do my expeditions is custom because that's what works best for the job. Right. But, um, you know, I did a project I've done a lot. Like I, you know, we did an unsupported crossing of Kamchatka. As a matter of fact, got stopped short after 20 days unsupported in the mountains of Russia, um, crossed by call in Siberia, middle of winter, February, 2010, uh, 650 kilometers as the crow flies, but closer to 700 on, on the ground and dragging sleds running 50 K a day. Right. I mean, just crazy stuff. Right. But I think the coldest I ever was in January, 2020, and to hit home this point also of doing things that we're truly passionate about the Eastern Arctic. I have a lot of friends. You were up on Baffin. I have a lot of close friends in Baffin Island, uh, in Kikiktarjwak, uh, a small island off the coast of Baffin. And I love seeing them. I love being there. And so it was always my dream to go from the island of Kikiktarjwak, cross the sea ice, keep going across Baffin on the way into Pangertong and do it in January. Right. Like that was always my, I was just, I, it would mean meaningless to anyone else. Everybody else would be like, I, don't, I have no idea what you're talking about. No, no trust me, this is going to be amazing. <laughs> And so I decided that I was going to do this this one winter. Oh, dude, it was brutal. It was 2020. The winds, I can't even tell you. The air temperature was minus 50. Mm -hmm. In When I was going up over the highest point on Baffin, the sea ice was bad enough, but I could average about 50K a day, pulling my sled, all my gear, all my supplies. I went light, but I knew that I was going to try and do this in five days. 220-ish kilometers in five days. And so I get that's how much time I gave it. It ended up taking me four and a half days, 
But I froze on that trip. My eyelids, the wind was so strong. It was blowing through the holes in my goggles, the air holes in my goggles, and my eyelids frostbit. Like oh, it was yeah. insane. My whole face was swollen. I was a mess. And I did everything to plan around that. I've posted some photos over at, at different times of my entire, like I was wrapped up completely and it was all just a chunk of frost, right? But anyhow, I got it done. But uh, that cold is so brutal, you know? Anyhow. There yeah. You <laughs> I mean, and you must have. The heat of- though can be just as bad. So in 20, yeah. uh, in 2021, you know, I've done some projects in Death Valley and I was retracing with a buddy of mine. We were retracing our 2011 in August, 2011. We did a complete North to South crossing of the Mojave desert through Death Valley. It's epic and 250 kilometers basically. Right. And we went back in 2021. I said, let's retrace it. Let's see our, do our route again and see if we can clean up our nav and all that stuff. I mean, dude, honestly, it's some of the most, at that time of the year, the most brutal terrain on earth at that mm-hmm. time of year, right? Because the heat just, we were a hundred K into it and we knew something was like completely off. We were drinking 10 liters each, every 20 K and processing it. Like mm-hmm. run that number through your head. That's an insane amount of fluid, right? Yeah. But we were processing it through, but we weren't, our bodies weren't cooling anymore. Tapped out and it turned, we thought, we're going to die, you know? And we tapped out and it was the hottest recorded temperature. I, th- I want to get this right, but I'm hottest 24 hour recorded temperature on the planet ever. Wow. It was ridiculous. It was like 134 Fahrenheit measured at Furnace Creek. And so there's, it's both ends of the extremes. But the, the crazy thing was, we didn't know that was happening. It just was happening because we were out there in the middle of nowhere. But we still somewhat normalized it in our minds because we're like, well, it's just really hot. We prepared for this. We know what we're doing. Right? So the psychological aspect of preparing for these things is the biggest thing, you know? Yeah. And how do, you, how do you know when enough's enough? You know? Well, when- I just knew my fingernails, dude, were on fire. Like it was like, if you ever reached into the oven to grab a pizza out of the oven and you don't have a, like a cooking mitt on and that <laughs> feeling of the yeah. heat on your fingernails, yeah. that's what it felt like. And I've crossed a lot of hot deserts, like the Namib desert, almost 2000 kilometers from South Africa to Angola, middle of summer. There was times in that crossing where I thought, well, this is where I'm going to die, you know, but you know, you make it through, right? You just kind of know you can kind of make it through. But this was like, no, we're going to die. You just like, it was like, dying you know so Jeez. was that the closest call you, you think and no i've had lots of close calls lots of, i've broken through rivers in the arctic rivers i broke through a river in the arctic once on an expedition and almost got washed underneath the ice that was terrifying and i got out at, literally at the last minute and uh was completely covered in you know water luckily i had my emergency suit i had a down suit with me in my sled my teammate stefano from italy was with me i had gone through and I was able to get myself out of this hole. It's a much longer story. And um, rolled in the snow. It's minus 30 out. And put on my, you know, to get all the moisture off. Got all my wet stuff off. Got my down suit on and walked for two days, dude. Till I get a point of pickup. Like it was like hypothermic. I just a mess. Uh, yeah. A disaster. All my, my toes all blistered. And 
you know, all the skin came off my toes. They were all frostbitten from my wet boots. Yeah. It's yeah. bad. Does yeah. that, does that, do those close calls make you reconsider or rethink how you plan these things or, or where you might go in the future, you know, with the family well, you know and the kids it, and you stuff? You know what it does? Yeah. You're, it's a really good question. You know, I've done 34 expeditions, major expeditions since 2007, and I've had three go completely sideways, right? And that's a pretty good average. Um, I will say this, it keeps you humble and it makes you realize that you haven't got shit figured out, right? You're always learning. And so anything that's gone wrong, I've never been afraid to write about it. Or say to people, I'm not moving the freaking goalposts. Like, this is what happened. And it is not what I set out to do. And here's why it didn't work out. And I think by putting that out there, we're able to learn from the things that don't go right. I'm always uh, apprehensive to use the word fail. Because it was a, a friend of mine. Chris, who corrected me one time, and it was an acronym he learned from someone else. And he said, well, Ray, there's no fail. It was only the first attempt at learning. And I thought, wow, that's, that's so great, right? So, you know, I would say that these setbacks help me appreciate things more that I have in my life back at home, family, friends, et cetera, these close calls, if you will. But also they teach me, okay, here's why things happen, even though sometimes it's not predictable mistakes that happen. Here's maybe what I could do next time to help mitigate potentially this problem ever happening again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important too, uh, what you said there about failure and being able to identify the learnings around it. Because I think I just read something before talking to you. Like it's it's a, one of those lines where it's saying that, you know, you don't learn and you don't learn something from winning. You learn something from from losing you know, and how to move forward and what went wrong and how you can, uh, you know, when it's that's such a good point, you know, when I was racing ultras, I started getting cocky because I thought I was, you know, Mr. Figured it out. And I was, I was, I really loved the desert races. Those were the things like, you know, I'd done MDS a few times and all this jazz. And, um, I entered Badwater ultra marathon and I thought well, easy. I'm used to running in the sand. I got this wasn't really prepared as well as I could have been. I had the best crew you could have asked for like Marshall Ulrich who look him up for the listeners that haven't heard of him. I mean, the dude is literally a legend in ultra running. He's a really good friend of mine and he helped us with um, impossible to possible a lot. Marshall's just to give you an idea, just to give you an idea. He's finished bad water 20 times. Like you heard that number, right? 20 times, right? I mean, the guy's, Outside Magazine called him the Endurance King at one point. I mean, so anyhow, I had Marshall's crew who helped me, you know, for Badwater. And I completely imploded at about the 40-mile mark. Flat on my back, out of the race, a complete mess, right? And it hit me, and I'll never forget me laying on the pavement, half passed out, thinking, I don't know shit. I don't know anything. What was I thinking? It was the best thing that ever happened to me because I came home from that. It humbled me. It taught me not to think I had everything all figured out. And I went on to, with humility, approach my next, I had three races before we would run across the Sahara. I won all three of them. 
the next three races. And I won those because of what happened in Badwater. Mm -hmm. You know, like I was able to just come back from that and learn from it. So as you said, it doesn't seem like it at the time, but the greatest lessons we come that we get come from the most difficult challenges from, you know, something like that. Defeat sometimes is the best thing that can happen. Right. I mean, I can say, you know, a lot of people listening to you might not be able to relate to like the expeditions that you do because they're unique. You know, not many people can go out to do that, but they run ultras or they run marathons or half marathons or whatever. So uh, as part of your planning, are there any things that you can always translate to like lesser distances, like from how you prepare for a big expedition? Is there is there lessons from that that you can also apply to lesser distances or other sports? Oh, absolutely. I think the key is, you know, um, I have a friend uh, who just, Yannick Fournier, he just finished. Uh, do you know Yannick? Do you know I him think from Bromont? I've heard the name before. Really nice guy. He just finished that race that's going on in the UK right now, 100K race. And he called me. He was, um, I helped him with his training, and he was at about the, um, goodness gracious, he was halfway, 50K. Called me on his phone. He's like, dude, it is brutal. It's insane. He said, I tripped twice. I fell. I've injured my ribs. I, you know, I, he said, I thought about pulling the plug, but he said, you know, I'm still going. And I'm, and I, and, and he said, you know what though, what's really interesting is, and I think, sorry, he may have been at the, yeah, it was time wise. Time wise, he said, this is the longest I've ever spent on my feet ever. And I said, dude, you've already won. Like you've already PB'd in a certain aspect of your running. I think what's critical, and by the way, he, so he goes on to, to finish it, right? Called me today, he's totally stoked. He's beat up, but he's stoked. And I think that the lesson there is that you have to appreciate as you're training and preparing for anything, whether it's your first 5K or you're going to run a 50K or you're going to run 500 miles. The key is to appreciate those smaller gains that you get and the smaller achievements that you have because they all add up in the long run. Instead of only thinking about the big, audacious, crazy achievement one at a time, you got to think of the small things. Um, Elliot, when Elliot, we first started uh, working together uh, in November of... So it would be a year this November. So what would that be? November 21. Um, we were looking at where he was at and how none of his races had gone well that year for him. And um, I said, you know what you need to do? You need to start breathing and relaxing. You need to get comfortable running. You need to be comfortable with yourself and you need to run and not be stressed. So I want you to start breathing through your nose. And the pace that you're going to run is how you can breathe. And I said, if you can only walk, well, then that's what you do right now. And that's all we're going to do for the next month. You're crazy. He said, you're crazy. There's no way. I mean, you know, this is a guy who's used to running 200 kilometers a week or whatever. I said, no, it's completely irrelevant right now. We have to get you back to a basic platform, to a point where you have something to build on, you know? like, And so that small achievement, within a month, he was running Oh, again, ridiculous speeds as he always does, but breathing through his nose. Mm. And then when we said, okay, now let's start doing some other things. 
after having that small achievement, the greater achievements came and then he was able to accept that. And then the, his races started going really well for him. And we all have setbacks, but it's not about winning. It's about achieving the goal that you set out for yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So if somebody asked me once, what did it feel like to reach the Red Sea after crossing the Sahara? And I said, I'm going to tell you, it felt exactly like the first run I did. So when I was racing mountain bikes, I was super fit. But we never ran. You would never run when you're racing in those days. And so I, when I entered the Yukon Arctic Ultra, I had a buddy of mine who was a very experienced ultra runner uh, who helped me to prepare. And I remember one day we went out and I did a run. And it was seven kilometers from where I was living in Chelsea back to, you know, it was a loop. So, and for the first time, because my legs would get achy. When I first started, even though my legs were super strong from mountain biking, they would get achy when I would run and I would take little walk breaks or whatever. And I ran every step. And that feeling of leaving my door and coming back to my door and running every step, that sense of accomplishment was so huge for me. It was exactly how I felt. So when the person said, how did it feel when you reached the Red Sea? I said, it felt exactly like the day I first ran 7K without stopping. It's relative. So the goals have to be relative to us each as individuals and we have to be able to celebrate those when they happen but also always have an eye towards how can we improve yeah that's that's amazing stuff for sure and and i'm sure it's even difficult to you know when you're training accomplished athletes too who have the experience who have you know success in the past and then you know they go through those stretches where it's not going so well it's like a lot of it's in their head and you, you got to switch it up too and, and get them to see the the big picture which which i'm sure you're helping them do um the terrain in which you train you know you do a lot of your training near your home you know mm -hmm. um you know some people think you know i gotta go to x location to train for this event and stuff like that but you've proved that that's you know, I'm sure you do some of that, but that that's not the case. You can train in your own backyard. So what do you think like the recipe is there for simulating what you're going to be facing when you, when you get on a plane and go to a new location? Well, uh, let me say this again too, because it's fresh in my mind. So I'm talking to you, Nick today at the end of his race and he's like, Oh my God, my ribs are killing me. I feel like I've been beat with a bag of hammers, right? Like, I mean, he's just a, a disaster. I said, you know what the flip side is? I said, you Nick, you know what the good news is? This massive effort that you just did to your body, your body's not going to forget this. It's going to grow from it. It'll never forget. You do something like that once, like you, you, you know, your first ultra that you ran, you thought there's no way, maybe you thought, there's no way I'm getting to the finish line. You get to the finish line. And then three ultras later, you're like, yeah, I can run an ultra. Want me to do one this weekend? I'll go and do it. You know, <laughs> so you, a big part, right? I, and, I, and people laugh when I say this, but it's 90% mental. The other 10% is all in your head. You get to this point where you can mentally adapt and get yourself forward through experience of doing. So I've done these things. So when I'm going to my next super hot desert, I know what it feels like to be in suffocating heat. Now, I have a sauna in our backyard. I train, I, you know, I sit in the sauna every day. Um, I do the best I can training at home, but I still do training trips for sure. Um, you know, look at if I was a, you know, uh, uh, Jim Walmsley, you know, I get it. You're going to, you're going after UTMB. You're going to be living in those mountains and running it for months in advance. Cause it's so sports specific. Like you've heard of sports specificity. 
train mm-hmm. specifically for the things that you want to do really well at. Um, because of the places I'm going and the remoteness and um, they involve navigation and potentially a helicopter drop or whatever, um, I, the, the means and resources to go to a place first, most times is not, is cost prohibitive also, right? So I try to replicate as best I can at home the type of stress that my body will be under. Nothing replicates being in the place that you're going to be in. So like Jim Wamsley running at UTMB or anyone that has the opportunity, you know, as you build up through anything, let's say your goal is just to complete the UTMB. Well, Mm -hmm. if you have a chance to go to those mountains on a trip to France at some point before and sort of know what you're getting into, it betters your odds, right? Of Mm -hmm. being able to finish it because you've immersed yourself in the environment. But here, when I'm training for the things that I'm doing, I train for adversity. So my pro- training programs are not designed around, for me, 200-meter repeats with 100-meter break and da-da-da-da-da. I'm not, I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about things like, okay, these three hours on Saturday, I'm going to get as much elevation or vertical as I can, but I'm not going to walk any of it. It has to be vertical that I can run. So I'm going to get as much distance with that vertical, but I'm not walking at all. And so... Now I've limited myself, right? There's a time, distance, elevation, speed factor because of the way that I've created the workout for myself. That's just one example of other, and I this pervades every other form of training that I do, whether I'm on the mountain bike or strength training or I'm in the sauna. It's about adapting to a tremendous load of stress that my body will be on in an expedition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see that, you know, you're, you're, you have a big willingness to share, to support also, and I always appreciate like talking to you because you always have so much good advice. And I know, you know, through impossible to possible, you're able to do that and you're able to see the future um, through this, through sport, through expeditions. What's your hope for, for those kids and for the future and like, what's the end goal there? Well, you know, I think with our impossible possible, our goal has always been, and we, I think we've had close to 70 kids that have gone on expeditions, but they've reached tens of thousands of students because their expeditions, as you know, are combined with an educational program. And the whole thing is broadcast into schools through satellite and a live website. So you can have an expedition with four or five youth ambassadors in the Amazon jungle or in the Tunisian Sahara, but there's 50,000 students on the other end watching the website, right? So we're trying to connect through kids. A big part of it is to create an appreciation, obviously for the world. And what I mean by that is not just environmental, but cultural, um, connectivity, all of these things that it means to be a human being on this planet in this time. And so we are hoping that we are creating future leaders, people that will in whatever they're doing, Um, and wherever they come from, whatever their background, then in their various aspects of lives that they go on to, they go on to lead in a way that is appreciative of the planet that we live on, but also with an eye towards what it means to be human. Because I think within every human being is this desire to explore and be an adventurer, right? And so it makes you appreciate the world more, right, as a whole. And so that's our goal with these kids, you know? Totally. Yeah. And I can say like, I live in Switzerland now, so I'm definitely tempted to <laughs> explore a lot more when you, yeah, when you, I guess when you so. see 
see those Alps and stuff and uh, definitely want to get in more trails and, and whatnot. And um, yeah, I love what you're doing with impossible possible. I think it's, I mean, if I had the chance when I was a kid to do something like that, it's like, it's amazing, you know, and, and it's something that, you know, when you're kids, you, you remember those, those things and those memories um, and being able to share it with schools and stuff as an educational tool. I think that's really, uh, that's really special as well. You know, well, and we this this next youth exhibition. We have a diverse group of young people coming from, um, uh, you know, the U.S., uh, from Quebec, from Nunavut, from B.C. I mean, it's going to be so cool because these kids are like, you know, like four corners, right? And they're coming together and they're going to do this thing together. So that and just that in in itself, you know, they they end up connecting with so many more people. You know, and through what they get out of it. And so, yeah, totally stoked about that as well. And what do you find? Like, what do they ask you when you meet these kids? Like, what do they ask you most about? You know, kids are curious and they. they What's interesting is they'll ask me about some of these places. Like I've, I've gone back to some of these locations. Like we talked about the Atacama desert when I crossed it in 2011, there was nothing out there. I mean, I was in parts of that desert. Uh, that I saw the Incan Trail. Like nobody would seen it for whatever, thousands of years because nobody would be out there. The whole area or vast sections of that desert were, um, you know, owned by mining companies, large mining companies. And the land wasn't being mined or developed. It was just, you know, that's, that's who had it, right? And so it was just this big, massive open areas. I've been back to the Atacama and I mountain bike the length of it one year and not exactly the same route because I was really out in the middle of nowhere when I ran across it, but it's changed. And in the last, since 2011, I've seen so much development in different pockets of the Atacama, like in different parts of the world that I've been, it's, we're, you know, people were calling before COVID the before times and the now times is now, right? And I think that for me, the before times were before social media and before this ease of communication around the world where an Instagram post now, do you remember when Instagram first started? If somebody posted a really cool photo, it was like, oh my God, that's an amazing quality photograph. You must be a professional photographer. (laughs) Now everybody's a freaking professional photographer. Like every photo somebody posts is amazing. Right. So I think that we think differently. We ingest information differently. Right. And I think that the world has changed dramatically since then in many ways. Like, I mean, that's a whole other rabbit hole we can go down. But I think they they asked me the most about what was it like, you know, when I went into the Amazon jungle in the early 2000s or what, you know, have I noticed a change in some parts of the planet? Yeah, I've seen glaciers recede to where they don't exist anymore. I've seen, um, I've been in parts of the jungles that are, were dense jungle with vibrant species of life. And those areas of jungle are gone. They've been burned. You know, there's nothing left there Mm -hmm. for miles and miles, kilometers and kilometers square. Um, So the world has changed a lot. So they asked me the most, what were these places like then? Have you seen these places again? And what do they look like now? Mm -hmm. Does that, does that make you think any differently about like, you know, climate change and like how we can improve, you know, what we do every day or how we go about things to, to try and 
um, slow down that, what, what, like the damage we're doing? Well, no, because I mean, everybody has, like, I, well, yes. I mean, listen, I, I, yes, in the sense that climate change is happening and um, the world is changing. And we're at a point where adaptation in our li lifetime, I mean, we're adapting. Look at the frequency of storms and, you know, it's all the things that are happening right now. And for sure, I worry about the future for my kids, ranging from environment to geopolitical and everything else and beyond. But I see in young people nowadays, and here comes that double-edged sword of social media. I see young people that are doing it. <laughs> So much shit at 20 years of age. When I was 20, dude, I was a basket case. I was a disaster. Most of my friends who were 20 were a disaster at the time. 20-year-olds, I can't believe what they're doing. Like, it, people are accomplishing so many things. So I think we have a generation of youth that are brilliant. And I'm not trying to unload everything on the future, on, the, on our future generations. But I'm very hopeful in our greatest resource, which is youth, right? So... I tend to lean more on the glass half full. I think things have a way of sorting themselves out with a lot of effort put behind it, you mm -hmm. know? And so I think that we're, humanity is, everybody's, you know, we are waking up to the things that need remedy, I think. And so only the future is going to hold for us. I Look at, yeah, it's sad to see glaciers receding at such a rapid rate, but you know, this is, it, 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 it's, it's great to be sad. Now let's do something about it. Right. And so this is, you know, I'm trying to contribute as best I can with impossible to possible and giving youth an opportunity to see the world and be immersed in it. But we'll, we all have the ability to do something, you know? Yeah. And yeah. And it's, we got to do the best we can. It takes all, it takes everybody to, to do those things. And to make a positive impact and certainly like educating the youth about these, these things and it's going to help for sure. And, you know, that's a big part of it. Um, I think about you and like when you, when you got into sport, like a, you know, a little bit later and you broke some pretty big, tough habits, you know? And I think about people who uh, are older in age who maybe are set in their ways and they don't know how to get healthy or they don't know, um, where to go or how to get started. Can you share anything? Um, I know it's, you know, it's been a while since you've been at that place, but I'm sure you remember like, how oh, do you dude? Yeah, Justin, I, sorry. I didn't mean to talk right over you there. I, I you know what I'm going to tell you? And, and cause when you said that it came to my mind right away. Um, it's funny how things happen in life and then, you know, it, it'll perk up again in a different part in your life. But I remember getting an email from someone once saying, listen, I follow you on all your social media stuff and I love it. And, you know, I, I would like to go and do some adventures someday. But I mean, my first goal is to run a five kilometer, you know, I a was a local five kilometer road race. And they said, but I have no idea. I don't even own a pair of running shoes. I don't even know how to get started. I have no clue how to get started. And I said, well, can I give you some advice basically, you know, back and forth on messenger? Yeah, please. And I said, well, tomorrow morning you start and you get off the couch and you put on your feet, whatever you have, and you walk out your front door and you go to the end of your lane and then you turn around and you come back in the house and you take your shoes off 
and then you sit back down on the couch and you don't do any more than that. And the day after that, you get up, you do the same thing. And maybe you go a little further, you go two houses down, you turn around and you come back and so on and so forth to the point that you can walk to your nearest running shoe store or store or whatever to get yourself a pair of shoes and then throw away those shoes that you started out with and now walk back in your running shoes because now you're someone with a set of goals and a plan because sequentially you've done something every day. You're not going to build Rome in a day. And dude, when I would go through chemo, I'm used to someone who can go out and run 30, 40 K, right? And I would come home after chemo and uh, two days of chemo. I would get up the next morning. I would be so sick, dude. Like I just couldn't do anything. And I would spend two or three days laying around, you know, looking at my phone. And then after the nausea would start to go away, I'd say to myself, okay, today I'm going for a walk. And I would go out my door. And I would do the same thing that I told that person. And we live on a road that's about 500 meters long, dead end. And I said, okay, that's my goal. I'm walking to the end of the road. I'm coming back. And then I know I've done something. And I would come home and I would rest. The next day I would get up and then we have another Cirque des Arabes. It's another like, you know, road. It's about a kilometer. All right, I'm going to go on a big hill. I'm going to go walk that. Dude, I can't tell you how stoked I was when I would get out and walk that kilometer because I felt like I could do it, you know? And I knew in my mind, I did 500 meters yesterday. I did a kilometer today. I'll do a kilometer and a half tomorrow. By the weekend, I'm going to run a kilometer. By the middle of the next week, I'll do 5K run on the trails. By the end of two weeks, I'll be doing 10K runs. And that was about where I peaked out in between the queue. I'll do 10K trail run and I will get that shit done. Mm-hmm. And it, and it, built on one another, right? Rome not built in a day, one step at a time and celebrate those small goals. Like I said earlier in our conversation, Mm -hmm. if you're willing to appreciate that that small goal is as valid as the bigger achievements that'll come later on, you know? And check, you know, check the ego at the door, right? Like it's, yeah. Like fitness is so relative, right? It's, it's where, you know, it's like when we go off effort base, you know, that for you is challenging in the moment. And, but the former, the, the you before that was, it was no big deal. I mean, you're used to doing, you know. Yeah, because you adapt to it, right? But in the same way that that person who had no clue how to get started, all you need to do is take the first step. Right. Right. And it sounds so corny to say, but it's, it's absolute truth. Yeah. What would you say is like, movement has brought to your life you know i i know you know you have all these accolades and these lists of of accomplishments but how do you how do you think it's impacted you well i think for certain running i've said this many times before but running um not today but i mean in the past running has been and is my greatest teacher because it's taken me around the world and taught me things about myself that i would have otherwise never known so running has been much more than just a physical health improvement for me But I also believe, and I've had people message me and say, you know, I can't believe you got cancer. You're such a healthy guy. How does that happen? And I said, well, you know what? Could have been a lot worse, maybe. Who knows? Glad I'm so healthy, right? So, you know, I running and movement and exploration and adventure and ultras and mountain biking and all these things I do have brought me not only a sense of purpose, but a sense of passion. And it and it's pervades every other part of my life, right? It's in every other part of my life is invested in that movement. So 
like I said earlier at the beginning of our conversation, if you find something that you're passionate about, that you truly love in your life, and it becomes your focus or primary mover in your life, then you've won the lottery. I mean, what else do you want? You know? Yeah. And health and family, you know, and you have mm-hmm. uh, both those Absolutely. things now too. So yeah, blessed that you're, uh, you're okay. And, uh, you can keep, keep on moving forward. Uh, how can we keep track of you, Ray? Where, where can people find out about your expeditions and all about you? Well, ironically, we were talking about the socials earlier, probably on social media. I mean, I'm on, you know, Instagram and, uh, Facebook, and I have a website, raiseahab.com, which gets occasionally updated. People don't seem to use websites anymore. <laughs> probably the easiest thing. I mean, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. A lot of people like to use LinkedIn nowadays. Probably social media is the easiest way okay, to reach great. out. Well, thank you so much, Ray. Like, I love talking to you, man. Like, you're so inspirational, and it's amazing where you've come and I, where you're going and uh, following along on your adventures and your, your kids now. Um, you know, I might, we might be looking at some future Olympians there. I'm not sure, but uh, I always love talking to you, and I, I hope everyone uh, appreciated this chat as much as I do. Thanks, Justin. It was great being here with you again. I can't wait to find it. We got to get it on a run together. So <laughs> well, I'm back in Canada now. So maybe now. Hey, yeah, I might be coming to Switzerland, so we'll see. Oh, yeah. amazing! Yeah, I'll definitely. Drop me a line. Yeah. Take care, Ray. Thanks, man. Thanks for tuning in to the Just In Stride podcast. I truly appreciate you taking the time to listen and I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Please take a minute after this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts. With your feedback, we'll be able to make the show even better and it'll help us reach new listeners too. You can also find us on Instagram at Just In Stride Pod for all the latest episodes and updates. Of course, this show wouldn't be possible without a solid team behind me with logo and design by Vanessa Pugliese, as well as audio, music, and editing by Forrest McKay, a huge thank you goes out to both of them. Guest outreach, social media, writing, and advertising are handled by me, your host, Justin Pugliese. Finally, we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for coming along for the ride with Justin Stride.